0: you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 145 again this evening. Psalm 145. It's been a good number of years now since I had the opportunity to do it, uh, but for, well, I think, 10 years, uh, I had an opportunity to teach Bible in our school, um, anywhere from 7th grade to 10th grade, maybe occasionally subbing with the juniors or seniors, uh, but largely 7th through 10th grade. and. Uh, In fact, I was thinking about it a few moments on the platform, just kind of looking out, and I'm like, actually, some of you were subjected to the torture of that, uh, and are now still here somehow as adults. Um, But one of the classes that I enjoyed teaching uh, during that time frame was principles of Bible study, just trying to help the students go to God's Word for themselves and see what does the text say? And then beyond what does the text say, what does it mean, and then beyond what does it mean... So what? What does it mean for me? What am I going to do with what this text says and what it means, and how is it going to change my life? And uh, one of the simple exercises that perhaps was a waste of time, I don't know, I thought it was valuable at the time, was I would bring in a picture from my office, and I'd say, okay, I want you to look at this picture, and I want you to write down everything that you see. We spent the whole class period doing it. And then we came in the next day. I said, "I want you to look at this picture I like, again. We're gonna look at this picture again, and I want you to write down everything you see." I was tempted to bring the picture with me. I did not tonight. You can stop by and just see me sometime in my office and take a look. Uh, but in the foreground of that picture is this eagle flying, and there's kind of flying over a rock outcropping. And then as you start to look in the background, uh, you realize there are some mountains back there, and there's a stream down below, and Uh, and I would just say, write down everything you see, and everyone's like, there's an eagle. Great. What else? There's mountains. Great. But you know, there's some things that some of us pick up on right away. Others of us don't pick up on at all. Like, the leaves are all changing colors, so we know what time of year it's supposed to represent. It's fall. And then you start to look and go, oh, there's three bears down by the stream, and there's an elk over there, and it's a bull elk, and it's a big bull elk with uh, seven points on each side, and then you start to look and go, well, actually, okay, there's the artist's signature, and you look further and go, oh, there's a chipmunk, and there's a frog, and there's another bird kind of behind the rock outcropping that's starting to fly out from the side, and then there's a spider on a log that's fallen very seriously, and you're like, wow, there's, like, when you walk in at first, like, there's an eagle flying, great, And you stop to look and you see more and more and more. And of course, then you get like the really smart students, probably some represented in the room here, uh, where it's like, it's covered in glass. It has a wood frame. Hey, those are legitimate observations, right? The idea being the more you look, the more you see. Again, it's a simple class thing, simple illustration for us this evening. But I want to remind you of a very important truth when it comes to a text like Psalm 145 that is so deep, it's incredibly humbling. I honestly believe you could look at this psalm every day for the next month, probably every day for the next six months, and walk away and go, I hadn't thought about that one before. That's good. I hope as I was preaching this morning, you're like, Pastor, what about that? You're missing that. Because it kind of felt that way, trying to summarize and package for us like the depth of what's here. Because it represents our incredible God. Like we said this morning, His greatness is unsearchable. We're not going to be able to plumb the depths of this psalm. Certainly not the depths of God as revealed in Scripture. And yet, even in that, even in giving us Scripture... God condescends to say, let me give you a little bit of who I am in words. There's that much more still to know. So I hope God will feed your soul through his word, by his spirit, as we finish out the second part of the psalm this evening. This morning, we looked at the first nine verses, and we summarized them with this overarching truth, praise God as sovereign king or sovereign ruler. We worked through that text in verses 1 through 9 with three very simple thoughts overall. First, praise him personally because he is great. Praise him personally because he is great. And even as we looked at that, we said we do that presently, we do that eternally, we should do that continually because in verse 2 he says every day, every day, good or bad, praise him and then praise him uh, greatly was the last thought there in that first point. Praise Him presently, internally, continually, and greatly. And I hope you're challenged once more through what we considered this morning to go, I want my praise to be great. Not mediocre. God's worth more than that. God is worthy of great praise. We move to the second thought, not only praise Him personally as a sovereign king, but praise Him intergenerationally. Verse 4, one generation We'll do this. We'll declare his works to the others. And we praise him intergenerationally because he's good. He's good. As we looked at that, we said, first, this happens publicly. And it happens enthusiastically. Remember, they utter forth, abundantly utter forth. Got to add that word. It's that stream that's overflowing, as we talked about this morning. It's just going out. Praise him publicly, enthusiastically, and musically. And then we said at the end, praise him gratefully. Because he is gracious. And even if you were here this morning, you know we had to fly through those last two verses. In verses 8 and 9. And go, man, look at all that's there. Tonight we want to continue to a second thought in verses 10 through 20. And then David's summary declaration in verse 21. And we've said this morning, praise God as sovereign king, sovereign ruler. Tonight, praise God as the gracious creator. Or we could say maker. I will note for you, as you get to verses 10 through 13, they're almost like a hinge in the text where we still have these kingly, sovereign themes coming up. Here's God's kingdom, here's God's authority, and we're making the transition to say, okay, all his works, all the things that he's made, all the things that he's done, and so that, that hinge does take place within the text as we move to the second point. The thoughts of ruler and creator are certainly closely and logically connected, right? Um, you make something, it's yours, right? You make it, a yours. You say, I made this, it's mine. Even, you know, uh, uh, you can walk up to kids and go, I made it, it's mine, or we can go to adults and go, it's my intellectual property, right? Go, hey, I made this, it's mine. Well, we realize, like, we're all just playing with stuff that God made, like, He spoke, and everything came into existence. He's the creator, so yes, he is ruler over it all, because he made it all. We come to verse 10 in the text and say, praise God as the gracious creator, we read these words, all thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. And I want to remind you as we look at this thought tonight, praise God as gracious creator first. He owns all. He owns all. And as we see this thought, we want to do it with a view to his excellence. This morning, we took each of the points and said, let's look at an aspect of God's character. And again, even in doing that, we're we're shrinking down what all the text has packed in. But as you praise God as gracious creator, saying he owns all, you see his excellence on display. At the beginning of verse 10, his excellence is recognized by the praise of creation. When it says, all thy works shall praise thee, and all the things that you've made. One of the thoughts we haven't spent a lot of time on today, but I'd encourage you to focus on as we work through the text tonight, or maybe as you meditate on this this, this week, are the names of God that are used. Because here we're pointed to Jehovah again, this self-existent one who's committed himself to his people, but here used in reference to his creation. He needs nothing to sustain him, nothing. He made it all, so he deserves praise from it all, but he needs nothing to actually uphold him, and yet he delights when we praise him. All your works should praise you, O Lord. Look at the quality of this. We recognize this from the standpoint of the created world. We go to like Psalm 19 1 and those familiar words to say, The heavens do declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. And that should be very clear to us on such a wonderfully beautiful fall day like today. Lord, everything you made in the created world brings you glory, but it ought to be true in humanity as well. And yet we understand biblically, theologically, sinfully that all of us knew God, Romans 1, but we glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. We worshiped the creature more than the creator. But I would remind you very simply as we go through this next week, you're part of God's creative world, uniquely created in his image. Praise God as part of his creation. He owns all. He owns you. He owns me we continue to look at this thought, he owns all, see his excellence on display. It's not just recognized by the praise of creation. Secondly, is recognized by people who are devoted to him or the people of devotion. End of verse 10 says, thy saints shall bless thee. We've talked about this before, probably been a year ago. Now we did a Wednesday night series to look at the idea of saints, holy ones. And to remind ourselves, while there are certain lines of denominational thought that would say say, saints are unique people, they're definitively spiritual people, they're venerated above all other people who claim to be Christians, biblically, that's just not true. The word of saints is used to describe all those who are believers in Jesus Christ. That's why, again, you read through the epistles, and it's, let's write to the saints that are in Ephesus, let's write to the saints who are in Colossae, like, Let's write to these people who are dedicated to God. They're uniquely his because of salvation in Christ. We come to an Old Testament text like this, and we need to just remind ourselves, saints are those who are uniquely set apart to God. They're his. I often use a plate illustration. I won't. This week I was thinking of uh, a certain cabinet in our house. If you were to go into our kitchen, just to the left of the sink. There's a cabinet and on the first shelf is kind of some medicine and some vitamins and things like that in case you want to come for fellowship and go there. The second shelf gets a little better though. It's where the kids' candy is. Right? Some of that comes from you, some of that comes from us. Uh, Sunday school, school, whatever. We've got candy. It's on the second shelf in that cabinet. But you know where the good stuff, mom and dad's chocolate, is on the third shelf. It used to be that that was out of reach. (laughs) That's not true anymore. But you know what? The third shelf is reserved space. It's set apart. It's dedicated. It's known. That's mom and dad's. You don't take candy from up there, right? You laugh, but you have the same thing in your house. Like, that's dedicated. That's hidden, right? You know, we take things that are special to us and we set them aside. Maybe it's not candy. Maybe it's just cherished possessions. To go, this is unique. This is set apart. This has a special place. God does that with his followers to say, You are consecrated to me. You are devoted to me. You are mine. You are special. And the word that gets used is, You're holy. You're saints. Yes, you are set apart, because again, so often, at least for someone like me, I hear the word holiness, I'm like, okay, that's telling me that I'm not supposed to do a bunch of bad stuff. Well, actually, it's saying, yes, you're set apart from that bad stuff, but you're uniquely dedicated to God, you're His. Here, the text is very simply reminding us that people who are dedicated to God, that are set apart as His, should bless Him. Not only did he create you, but he redeemed you and said, you're mine, Your saints. Bless him. Praise God as the gracious creator. He owns it all. See his excellence recognized by the praise of creation, but also recognized by people of devotion. And then third, recognized in public through conversation. It says, the saints shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. We get this, again, very simply, but, you know, we can run past and go, okay, yeah, I'm supposed to talk about it. You know, the things we find amazing or excellent we talk about. On a simplistic level, very simplistic level, public conversation often goes to those who've been very successful looking at what they own or the influence that they have, right? You don't have to scroll through the news or listen to it very long to hear certain names just come up in our culture, whether they're athletes or business people to go, here's what LeBron James has done. Here's what in the past Michael Jordan has done. Here's what Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos has done. And, you know, culturally there's this preoccupation to go, that's amazing. Look at this success. Look at this excellence. In the context of Psalm 145, David's looking at God saying, you've made all, you own all, you are creator. You are king, so let's talk about you. Very simple thought, right? So how are we doing? Praise God is the gracious creator. He owns all. You know, it caught my attention not too long ago. Bill Gates, like, oh, the largest owner of farmland. I'm like, how do you go from Microsoft to farmland? the news is going, look, look at how much this man owns of all this farmland. And people get all concerned and worked up. You know what? God's still in control. Right? Here, the text is saying God owns all. All. So talk about his excellence. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom. And talk of thy power. So I wonder for me, for you, for us... Have we talked of the glory of his kingdom, saying, he's my authority. He's in control. And his power is astounding. I've seen his grace at work in my life, enabling when I felt like I couldn't. I've seen his answer to prayer to go, man, look at what God has done. So do we, do you, talk about his excellence and ownership? Publicly, regularly, normally worshipfully not just at church but going through life look at the end goal or the effect of this conversation says this is recognized in public through conversation the holy ones the saints are talking but verse 12 to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom Help them understand God's excellence. Look at his mighty deeds, or we could say, here's the power of his deeds. Look at the incredible nature of his kingdom, his glorious majesty. In other words, he's saying, they're going to talk about this because they want other people to begin to glimpse the glory of God. But don't miss the target here. calls to mind, I believe, contextually what we saw this morning in verse 4 says, to make known to the sons of men. carries a very similar idea to, say, one generation to the next. They're talking about it so that others who are descendants will know, here's what God has done. Tell the sons, the next generation, of God's excellence. Again, what a wonderful for us to go, you know what, here's my biography of God. Here's what I'm writing down as to how I've seen God at work in my life. I want to tell someone, here's what God has done. So we close out this first thought that God owns all. Look at his excellence. Look at how David then directly addresses God to point to these realities in verse 13. So, so God, David's been saying these things, and he turns to God in verse 13 and says, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. We touched this this morning, so we won't belabor it too long this evening. But again, he's saying, God, you're king. Earthly kings, they come and go. But God, your kingdom is never diminished. Your kingdom lasts forever. Generation after generation needs to understand your ownership and see your excellence. David wrote that almost 3,000 years ago now. And it's no less true today. I mean, we've been on Wednesday nights looking at the book of Daniel. And what just fascinates my mind as I look at Daniel is watching kingdoms come and go. Not just kings, but kingdoms come and go in Daniel's lifetime. Right? We would struggle with that. Like, if we woke up and we said, America is no longer a democratic republic, You know what? We just have a different form. Like, uh, what? We start out with Nebuchadnezzar and we move eventually to Nebuchadnezzar to Belteshazzar to, oh, and now another foreign power is controlling us? But earthly kingdoms come and go and have all through time. All through time. And you you know what hasn't changed is what David wrote here 3,000 years ago. God owns all. Look at the excellence of his authority as both creator and and king. It's incredible power. It's incredible excellence to say, praise him as the gracious creator. He owns all. See his excellence. But the next point in the text to me, or where the text goes next, is not what I would expect, but what I deeply appreciate. We want to move to a second thought. Praise God as the gracious creator who upholds all. Not only does he own it all, but he upholds all. And as we see this, we don't just look at his excellence. Here we want to see his kindness on display. Against the backdrop of such greatness, such excellence, we are pointed to, here's God's kindness. With that kind of authority, that kind of sovereignty, that, that kingdom that lasts into eternity, we're then told, here's God's mercy. Here's God's humility. Here's God's grace as he interacts with those who are struggling. She you come to verse 14 with me and look at this idea, praise God as a gracious creator who upholds all, see his kindness. First, see his kindness as a strong encourager. I would have to imagine some of you here tonight, some of us, need this thought. Praise God as the gracious creator who upholds all, in kindness, as a strong encourager. Verse 14, the Lord upholdeth all that fall. He raiseth up all those that be bowed down. Here's Jehovah, the self-existent one, who's committed himself to his people, who comes along to those who've been tripped up by life. And says, you know what? You've stumbled. You've fallen. Let me raise you up. Don't miss the personal way that this is expressed. You know, because sometimes we kind of separate that. The, the text is saying he's coming along, and he's saying, you know what? Let me help you. You've fallen. You're struggling. I'm gonna uphold you. I'm I'm gonna raise you up. I mean. The life is just pressing you down and and you're bowed over as though the circumstances, the stresses, the pressures, the conflicts, the relational problems, the stuff at work, the stuff at home is just overwhelming and you're bowed down. God says, let me come along and help you. The one whose kingdom lasts forever. I mean, we might expect someone with that kind of power, that kind of authority to go, you know what, I'll send a servant that'd be fine. It'd be appreciated. It would seem right and okay. But the text expresses it so much more personally here. It's it's like what we read in the Servant Songs of Isaiah, where we go, hey, this bruised reed, he won't break. The smoking flax, he won't quench. To go, you know what? God cares very tenderly for people who are struggling. And the psalmist David here exalts God for his care for people as a strong encourager. I mean, even here, the idea of they've fallen down, it's like failure has happened. We don't know what all circumstances would be in David's view, but we can certainly go, you know what? There are people who, they've stopped believing because circumstances beat them up. Temptation came, they give in. Sin has won battles. You, go, you know what? Here's your Lord. Here's Jehovah upholding those that fall. He's committed to you as his child. With all of that authority and majesty and power that we looked at this morning, the text pivots so dramatically here where his kindness is on display saying, here is God as your strong encourager. But secondly, as we come to verse 15, he upholds all in his kindness, not just as a strong encourager, but secondly, as a benevolent provider. A benevolent provider. The eyes of all wait upon thee. Now, I wish that statement were always true. I mean, realistically, it's the right answer. It's what should be. The eyes of all should do this. But far too often, we lean on our own resources. We lean on our own strength. We lean on our own understanding. Here, we ought to follow what the text says. The eyes of all wait upon thee. And thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The psalmist here opens by noting people's expectation or anticipation. They they have needs. You been there? Right? Yeah. Maybe defined differently than what would be true culturally for the Israelites, but we all know what it's like to look and go, I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough wisdom. I, I, I don't have enough. And God meets us in the middle of those needs. He doesn't withhold. He does not look and say, you know what? Let me evaluate your worthiness. Right? Everybody's looking. They're waiting. They They have needs, and he gives them what they need. He provides food in due season. He provides the idea of meat being food again. I like that idea of due season because it indicates once more that his answer, his provision is not always on our timetable. Don't you struggle with that? Maybe it's just me. It's like, Lord, I need an answer. I needed it like yesterday. And so the Lord saying, no, you wait on me. You wait on me. And I've referenced this text a few times recently but I think of that text in Galatians 6 right we're not to sow to the flesh because if we do we'll have the flesh reap corruption we're just supposed to sow to the spirit if we sow to the spirit we'll reap life everlasting and then we're told be not weary in well doing for in your time you'll receive if you pay not that's what I wish it said due season the Lord determines due season here We're waiting on you, and yet he provides. I like the picture of he opens his hand. For whatever reason, I found my mind going back to a church I grew up in where there was a man who would go shake hands after church, and he always would pull out of his pocket peppermints. There it is. I'm like, there must be like a limitless supply in that pocket of peppermints. Well, you know what? When God opens his hand, it never runs out. It's an inexhaustible supply to meet the needs of all present. I mean, again, the text is saying all eyes are looking at you. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. It's taken beyond just humanity and people here. To every creature that's out there, you meet their needs. I mean, I think of it just in context of like my family, and sometimes I go, Lord. I don't have enough resources to meet those needs, right? There's not enough hours in the day. I, I I create enough problems that I can't solve those. Like, and God can look at all people, all creatures, and meet all needs because He cares. And the Old Testament is replete with examples of God taking what seems like dire circumstances for people in need of provision and saying, let me provide for you. Let me provide again. We praise God as the gracious creator. He owns it all. See his excellence. He upholds it all. See his kindness as he does. Third, he's available to all. See his justice. He's available to all. See his justice. And there's We look at this thought, when we say justice, there's really two thoughts that come out. One, he's fair to everybody. And two, there is judgment for both the just and unjust. So we look at this idea that we praise God as the gracious creator who's available to all in his justice. First, notice with me in verse 17, it's righteously comprehensive. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, holy in all his works and yeah, the idea of righteousness meeting the standard, and we touched this a little bit this morning uh, when that term was used in this morning's text to go, he is the standard. He always meets the standard. But, but it's not like, well, he really favors this person over here, and so he does right by them, but, but them over here, he does not. He takes the same standard and applies it to all, which is why it's so scary to realize we all fall short before him. But in how he handles people, it's righteously comprehensive. He's devoted to all in his works. He's, uh, again, holy, committed, right, set apart in how he interacts with all. Again, that word holy is to say he's devoted to it. Some translations add the idea of he loves and cares for. and Certainly that's theologically true. But what's being actually expressed here in the text is he's faithful to all because he's committed to all. He's holy towards all that he has made. So again, we praise God as the gracious creator. In his justice, he's available to all. We could say righteously comprehensive. But secondly, his availability and justice is mercifully interactive. It's mercifully interactive. Where in essence, he's going to say, if you go to him, you call out to him, he'll be there for you. Here's the call to anybody. Anybody. You ask him, he will respond. We look at the idea of mercifully interactive. We'll just break it into two simple thoughts. One in verse 18, one in verse 19. Verse 18, he's near. Ask him, he's near. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. For those who call out to God, he always answers. He doesn't leave them, he doesn't forsake, he's close at hand. and it points us to the power of his presence. You know, we go through circumstances in life where it's like, I just need someone to walk through this with me. I just need someone to help. I just need someone to be there. I do believe one of the unique temptations we face that we don't always think about is feeling completely alone. We can be like, have people talking to us and whatnot, but interconnected more than ever with devices and feel completely alone. You know what, if someone just understood, if someone was just there, well, the text of Scripture over and over in the midst of that reminds us that God's always there. If we just call to him, he answers. We've taken time recently on a Wednesday night, so I won't spend the time doing it today, to go back and look through texts that tell us he is with you. He is with you. He is with you. I love the one there in Hebrews 13, 5, and 6, where he says, uh, the Lord um, will never leave us nor forsake us, so that I may boldly say the Lord is my helper. He doesn't leave me. He doesn't forsake me. He's always there. If I'll call out to him, he will answer. You know, the church ought to represent that same kind of idea where it's like, you know what, you need help, we're there. You don't want to feel alone, right? Right? The church is one of, should be one of those places when you walk through hard life, even though temptation pulls you apart, you say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean in hard. Even though those thoughts are like, Well, I feel no, I'm gonna lean into my church family and they're gonna surround and love me at the same time. But you know what? God always does that. Always. He's committed to all that he has made. He's near to those who call to him. Not only is he near, but he will save. Verse 19. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. You call out, he's near. You call out with a reverence for him, asking him for help. He hears and answers. He delivers. Again, the text doesn't tell us. He, He rescues in the exact way we desired. But he gives us a way out. He gives us rescue as he answers. Again, you can call any number of people. but hey, I need help. You're not guaranteed they're going to pick up the phone and answer. You're not going to be guaranteed that they can show up and help. They might say, well, I'd really like to, but I have this going on, or I don't know what to do, or any number of reasons. And yet the text here is very simply telling us God has made all. Praise Him for His creative power. Praise Him for His sovereign authority but at the same time, recognize that he cares for you. When you're struggling, when when you have to cry out to him, he answers and will save. We've been looking at praising God as gracious creator. He's available to all. Here's his uh, justice most recently, finally. Notice with me that he is responsive in verse 20. The Lord preserveth all that love him, but all the wicked will he destroy. We said... In his justice, he's righteously comprehensive, he's mercifully interactive, but he's justly responsive. At the end of the day, he's going to do what's right and fair. He preserves all that love him. To see how he cares, how he upholds, how he provides, ought to bring us to love him, to trust him, and that he preserves those that love him. But those who turn away, who reject, who go their own way, says the wicked, he destroys. God takes care of those whose heart is for him, but conversely, the wicked are judged. It's that same picture that we saw now several weeks ago in Psalm 1. Here's the counsel of the ungodly, but the blessed man delights in God's word. On the other hand, here's the ungodly and their fleeting nature. God's justly responsive. Notice David's final conclusion, echoing the praise that we've seen throughout the psalm in verse 21. He says, my mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever. David says, for me, I'm going to give praise. Reality is everything should do this as well. Two very simple thoughts for us today. Praise God as your sovereign ruler, your king but praise him also as the gracious creator who comes along the struggling to uphold, to minister, but does so treating everyone fairly as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text, its depth in revealing your care, your authority over us. Lord, I pray that you would take these thoughts and use them to stir praise from us for yourself this week. Lord, I pray that that praise would be present privately, prayer as we thank you, as we talk to you. But I pray that it would be true publicly, whether it's in our homes, talking to the next generation, whether it's in our church as we gather, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our workplace, that we would praise you greatly, knowing that you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Pastor Ginger, would you come and lead us in a closing hymn?